Welcome to the Manhood Simplified podcast, where with each episode, we'll be helping you unpack some of the issues to do with masculinity in the South African context. I'm Ayan Banyati. And my name is Gameli Hlepovana. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on the Manhood Simplified podcast. Today we're speaking about all things to do with toxic masculinity. And for that, let's introduce our guests. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on the program. Please tell our audience who you are, which organization you're part of, and the work you do. My name is Katle Horasi Vite. I work for Sisonke National Sex Workers Movement. It's one of the biggest female black-led organizations in the whole of Africa. I do national organizing, and I'm also part of the Global Fund, country coordinating. We're making sure we coordinate the HIV money in the response of the year 2030, where we're about to end HIV and STI and TB. And I am Jabu Pereira. I am the director at Iranti. We are an LGBTI rights organization, but we specifically focus on transgender, intersex, and LBQ, lesbian, bisexual, and queer rights. Uh, we are based in Brixton, Johannesburg. Uh, we work in South Africa, but we also work in the rest of the continent uh, to change hearts and minds on stigma and discrimination. To both our guests, thanks so much for making time. It's lovely to have you on the program. Chabu, Katleko, thank you so much for joining us. As a means to contextualize our conversation, when we look at toxic masculinity in South Africa, and we especially consider how recently it's become a part of the discourse in South African society, how far back in, into our country's history can we trace the presence of toxic masculinity and how has it shaped where we are today? Quite the question. Perhaps, Katleko, you can kick us off. Yes. I mean, it's, it's, a, yeah. it's a lot to take in in our world, I'm sure. Um, you know, basically, when you look at things as, uh, such as culture, you know, it has kind of like impacted the way society behaves today. And not only that, the issue of religion, regardless whether you... I won't mention names, but the issue of religion has played a role whereby, like, a man felt, you know, the ownership of the, being the owners of the world. Issues whereby, like, I'll just quote, you know, I'm the head of the house. That's when it started the whole thing, basically. And we are in South Africa whereby, like, um, women are literally trying to rise up in a manner like that. So you see movements like hashtag, uh, you know, I'm next, you know, feminism. Also, we have seen the, the, the waves of feminism, how it also rolled out. These are some of um, the interventions that uh, at some point women felt, you know, enough is enough. That now we also need to readdress how um, young boys are being raised. You know, like the issue of, um, I know lots of men out there are going to say, but the issue of us as men sending other men to literally go buy a wife for you because you got 100,000, then we call it in a form of lebola. That on its own, it's another form of society where we like literally stand there, but my uncles are going to go negotiate with other men for a price of this particular female, and then she's bought in a form of lebola. That's another way we can call it a toxicity masculinity. Culture also plays that huge role. Sure, already I, opening a can of worms yeah. with the first response, <laughs> but that's fine. You know, Jabu, what I find is that a lot of the time we don't even take a moment to ensure that people understand what we mean by toxic masculinity, mm. right? To have toxic masculinity suggests to me that there are other forms of masculinity that exist. So let me throw you into the deep end. How would you define what a toxic form of being a man actually looks like? Yeah, I, when you asked about how far one's memory goes to thinking about toxic masculinity, 
my first, the first person that came to mind was Jan van Riebeck, um, because you can't really speak about toxic masculinity without thinking about its embodiment around white supremacy. Because when we think about the origins of violence, we have to think about the very, the way violence came to Africa was through colonialism. And so when we think about toxic masculinity, we have to think about the very first white men that came to our shores to enforce and criminalize homosexuality, for example. So when we think about the criminalization of something like homosexuality, it is not something that originated because it is un-African. It is something that origina originated in its criminalized form by white British people and by the Dutch. And so as much as those countries are now free of penal codes, we know that within Africa and South Africa before apartheid, we were dealing with hyper hetero toxic masculinity through the gaze of white men, through the criminalization of white men that want to determine what black bodies should do, what black male bodies should do, and what black male bodies should desire or not desire. And so it is very difficult to, to, to only frame toxic masculinity within the stereotype perception that black men are violent or that black men in all its form are inherently violent. And so the rootedness of, of, of trauma and aggression resonates deeply in, in our continent by the theft of white men about our land, the theft of resources, um, and the deep deprivation at which we still suffer within our respective black bodies, be they black, brown, or whatever. And so when we think about the trauma of landlessness or the trauma of hunger or, 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 or inequality, is, is that not the very system of toxicity? To be poor and to be homeless is toxic. And so, and so we have to think about that in its larger context, right? And so I, I think uh, about uh, being a child um, born in PE and seeing all these signs about um, how my body can't go to the beach or go to a toilet or sit on, sit on a bench. I was born in 1971, um, where I had to constantly think about what is so sick about my body in the color that it is, that I cannot swim in this beach or that I cannot play in this playground. And, and so that takes me further into my adult life um, in, my, in my time of transition from female to male and, and having to embody the very pain of what it means to be in a masculine body in South Africa in this time, because that masculinity itself really embodies violence. It embodies privilege. It embodies patriarchy in, its, in, in all its sense. So I think we have to deeply think about that. And sure, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, uh, the tail end of your recent um, contribution to this discussion, Jabu, it segues very neatly to my next question. And you touched on it briefly in your own submission, um, as far as the ways in which the 
the, the, the concept and the idea of toxic masculinity has been fueled at the forefront by, by, by men with the operating idea that only men have a say on what constitutes masculinity, what constitutes toxic masculinity. How do we go about deconstructing that idea and this idea that only men have the authority to answer to, to what is and what isn't a toxic display of masculinity? Um, this is, goes as far as um, when you look, I like what, you, what Abu said in terms of criminalization, certain aspects as well as the body autonomy. In 1957, it was a cabinet of full white people. They decided to make a law to say we will criminalize sex workers, but specifically black females were the target of that law. And we, we're sitting in 2022. We have a democracy, we have a, but still the majority of men that are in parliament cannot even make a decision to say why should the police arrest the black female specifically, say, I'm an adult, my body, my business. So it also shows that, you know, the culture that we inherited upon this masculinity, it still runs into 2022. And not only that, when we literally now, obviously we need to at some point to, to, to do the law reform, only in 2002 the year, when now they decided, oh, now we forget to, to, to criminalize all those who buy sex. Let's decriminalize men. But up to today in 2022, You'd never see your media reporting around um, men that are selling sex who are being arrested by the police. And it also plays a quite very toxic in terms of how also the media, when they specifically report women that are into the adult sex work industry, they would always say, let's say she's dead for heaven's sake. A body of a dead prostitute was finding next to da 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 that writing also, it's, it's very toxic when it comes to that. And more, more, if you look at more mostly, it's always men that come with such stories. You know, most, uh, they even call them mahoshas. It's always men because for some women to even write an article on based on another woman, on its own, she will never do that because of the minute you write something that is very toxic on another woman and you paint her, the trauma that comes after that because of, remember, not all women are known that to, to be having sex work. You come as a journalist, you are a man, you write this article, you expose the trauma that comes because their kids they didn't know. For the first time, now I find out, wow, oh, my mom was also a sex worker, but through the paper. So these are some of the things that we also need to educate those who are into journalism, that you also your writing should not be um, the recipients of this toxic writing that we have seen. You know, I know they said it when you use the word mahosha around, but on its own, it's very toxic to be walking around calling people um, the, that word, yeah. So this is how we also we need to educate. So it goes deeper beyond like, you know, ice. Yeah, no, I can see you're very passionately speaking. Yeah. Also, notice how Katlejo is looking directly into my eyes when you criticize the media. But I get that. It's fine. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> what Katlejo is alluding to, though, is socialization, right? There are things that we do inadvertently, sometimes voluntarily, that feed into the toxicity. Um, I wonder how we begin at the very least to be aware of that, because, you know, even some of the worst actions are as a result of the best intentions, dare I say. Trouble? Yeah, it, it goes back to that old, old question about what, what's, what is a man, what is a good man, or what yeah. is, you know, what is a woman, and what, what makes up a good woman, or, uh, you know, or, or, or those kind of issues. It's in and different I, contexts, right? Absolutely, yeah. and I think that because there are all these pressures on society um, to conform to particular roles. So when we speak about masculinity, do we include female masculinity? You know, do we embody the, the notion that masculinity 
does not belong to cisgender men. That cisgender meaning men who are born men and who are always boys and identify as boys, right? So, so are we then prescribing masculinity to a wider definition? So even cis men who are feminine are masculine, right? right? So I think that's, that's really the, the, the issues about um, what, what do we embody? Do we support uh, the, the notion of female masculinity? And, and, and how do we see that, that society doesn't is through the murders of many um, black lesbians in this country who express um, through their bodies um, a non-binary identity or a masculine expression or a, 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 an expression that's not stereotypically feminine presenting. And, and, and that's where we see the, the manifestation of, of toxic masculinity, where we start to see that somebody who does not agree with your expression believes that their actions of violence needs to be the, the method of communication on that, sometimes to death. And I think that's, that's the real hard um, conversations or, or, or changes that, we, that we're needing in South Africa. You know, how many reports on a daily basis do we hear of murder of young women, murders of, 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 so, of children, um, and the rate at which we communicate through violence, particularly by um, cisgender men um, in this country is concerning. I mean, it, it, it's almost at a state of a national crisis in that sense. Do you think enough has been done by our country's leadership to acknowledge the severity of the crisis that we face as far as the policies and the laws that are being put in place to address any acts of criminality against um, women, members of the LGBTQI plus community? And how reflective is it of in, in your opinion, how reflective is it in, of the level of seriousness that our country's leadership takes these issues? Yo, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I literally, I, I, I'm, I was part of the people who were actually doing the, the gender-based violence plan that is about to end in 2024, mm. whereby like we really bring women's issues. This was before the Boys in High GBV court that was launched by the, the current president. And when you look into the plan, Literally two two billion rands that was supposed to actually be the intervention around these issues. Um, I remember some point one minister was, appears on TV to say they have saved houses. I challenge that minister to say, Minister, I cannot be in my own house as a woman being abused by a man. The next thing you want me to go to a safe house. Rather take the husband who's abusing this wife, keep him in the safe house until he's rehabilitated enough to be welcome to society. So these are some of the things that I raised. And at, at, up to today, we don't know what happened to the two billion. I'm saying out there, we don't know what happened to the two billion. That was supposed to be an intervention. So these are some of the things also. At some point, you find that also our political leaders, they do not, uh, how will I put this? They do not necessarily entertain this, you know, what we, we today we are discussing because they feel at some point um, it's useless because of, you wouldn't, um, I'll just mention, I'm not going to mention, one political party literally told us that, you know what, literally, if we were to decriminalize the sex work as a political party, we are going to lose voters. I'm like, but we are sitting on 888,000 identified sex workers, meaning I can take 40 sex workers, 400 sex workers, 40,000 40, sex workers, 
and qualify for a seat in parliament if I want to literally now to challenge them. At some point, we've been threatened the president. So you know what's name? What we will do is we will wait for you at the airport because we've got connections. We will wait and I will make sure on that day, sex workers, to understand their issues, we will wear panties and bras. The minute you walk, step into the airport, we'll throw bras and panties at you. He never showed up at the airport. So see, these are some of the things that at some point you need to be aggressive about this issue. You say, I'm going to take action now. Because if you sit as an advocate, we sit at home, these issues, they keep uh, repeating itself. It's like, it's almost like, um, it's a circle because of no, there's not enough intervention. Literally, maybe some of the viewers out there, they're not aware that there's a specifically a gender-based violence plan, but nobody entertains because of, it, it, it has not been costed yet because the two billion disappeared. On that plan, though, if we can stay with it, did you feel heard at the time? I mean, when you're putting these things together? Because, you know, there's a lot of grandstanding that I find takes place. You know, there's, there's talks about talks, um, which don't necessarily, as you've pointed out, lead to any kind of material change. So at the very least, in the process, are you feeling tokenized or are you feeling actually heard on those tables? Mm, it's, it's, it's quite sad because, you know, for you to know that, but we have this document, which is a legal document, and then, but it, it, it's not even, um, it doesn't have any impact in, in terms of changes. I'll make just practical one example. When we, um, we were launching the National Strategic Plan for Sex Workers Treatment and um, HIV, STITB, it took us three years for just one minister to sign the documents to be just an illegal document. Mm. That on its own, it shows that as a country, there are certain issues that we, you know, are not going to be entertained until we don't know. I'm aware that currently now the country they are going through what you call it, the consultations plans, da, da, da. the Justice Minister of uh, Development, I was with him last week, clearly he doesn't have even an idea that what is happening on the ground. People are like, but we're waiting for the public to comment. We already submitted submissions to say, but we have submitted. We're speaking women that are being harassed daily by men who are police. You are white minister. You come, you, you're speaking from the white point of privilege because you don't understand black women's issues on the ground. We're talking one, according to our research, one sex worker maintains up to like five of kids. That's according to our research that we did. Mm -hmm. And when you address these issues to a privileged white minister, who's a deputy, who's supposed to do all of these things, it's like, but we're still waiting for the public to comment after the public, da, da, da. but clearly you can see there is no change in the law reform. They detached. <sighs> right, sure. It's a lot to unpack. I'm not sure if there's anything else you'd like to ventilate, but you know, I can't help but notice the space we're in, in the form of this, this beautiful library, and the message that we're hoping lands on specific people. Jabu, I find a lot of the time, it is conversations like these that take place in echo chambers, among people who know, among people who are activists, who are very active in specific spaces. And dare I say, they don't reach places where it feels like they are breaking barriers. Maybe I'm just being cynical and disillusioned. What's your take on how we can at least break those metaphorical barriers, so to speak? Well, I mean, I think if anybody still believes or has trust in the state, then I think that's questionable because I think we, we saw in our local elections um, just how little faith we have in the mm -hmm. state uh, by the voter turnout. And, and, and especially having to have survived a pandemic in this particular time, right? And we saw the rise in violence. We saw the rise in murders um, in, in this period as well. Um, so I think there's, there, there's several factors that we need to look at. 
look, I'm 51 years old. I, there's a generational gap between what young men out there are speaking about, what they're listening to. But what I can see is that when I go onto Twitter and Mac G or somebody else has said something highly controversial, there's a high level of black male participation in that. And when you look at the trends of what people are saying is that we still have a long way to go in how particularly black men objectify women, how women's bodies objectified in all, in all manner. Um, and, and I think we have a long way to go to, 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 to kind of nurturing um, this younger generation of men uh, to be more respectful, one of themselves, because if you don't respect your body mm. and if you don't respect who you are, you are not going to respect your mother or your relative or your neighbor or somebody that's different to you. Uh, and I think those kind of factors, you know, um, come into it. And I think, I, I think the biggest challenge we have and for, for platforms like yours that's beginning is, is to ask, um, how do you move um, the hearts and minds of, of young black men? How do you move them to shift, um, to be more softer, to be gentler, um, to be more thoughtful? And I think that's the real issue is, will, will a platform like this reach um, the audience that, 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 is, that is hardened by, by um, thinking that homophobia is acceptable or that transphobia is acceptable as a form of masculine expression. And I think that's where we're sitting in this, in this difficulty, uh, whether it's the government, whether it's, whether it's the media, or whether it's an organization like mine, I think we, we, we are grappling with how do we shift young men in a country where 41% of the population is unemployed. Yeah. What do we do? Yeah. Indeed. And I think as my final contribution to this discussion, just to latch on to uh, my colleague's question, for the benefit of those who listen and engage with this conversation that we're having, who are interested in opening and broadening their horizon and their perspectives on these issues, who are interested in engineering the change that we want to see in our society, who might, as Uka Klecho alluded to it earlier, feel a degree of hopelessness as far as their efforts not being not being matched with anything materialistic happening as far as a change being developed. How do we keep those individuals on side and part of the fight in the face of the difficulty that, that lies ahead of them? Well, I think we, it, it, it starts by us men admitting we have failed women. You know, um, this conversation shouldn't be now um, about us saying we should put ourselves in her shoe as men. To say, you know, one day I want to put myself in her shoe. Then it begins with us. We, 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 we as men, especially black South African men, we have been in, in a face where like there's a, a painted brush that, yeah, you're doing this because clearly you, you are a man. You deserve to do that. The minute we take, we, we take such conversation and it starts with us, then it's like, for example, when you sit and it's like, but men don't want to vaccinate. You know, I'm just making an example. But the minute it's about us men, we do not want to vaccinate, then the conversation starts to roll out. So it has to start with us to say, we admit we have failed women of the country. What's the next move? Then you see healing will take place eventually. 
I think we have a, we we have to do the work. I really think that um, we have to engage a lot more um, because if we believe that men emotions are different from female emotions, then we have a problem because everybody hurts the same way, everybody loves the same way, and and I think we have a younger generation that's deeply hurt. Um, Feel, they feel ignored, uncared for. And I remember just after apartheid, we used to talk about the lost generation. I don't know who invented that term, but literally somebody had made us all believe that there was a lost generation. In other words, a generation that can be written off. And I think we are heading there if we don't change this tide around, is that we are seeing, if you drive around Joburg, every traffic light has four young men begging. And we have normalized poverty. We have normalized that black men's bodies look like this and should be like this. We see trucks of black men going to do cheap labor in this country, and we have normalized it. And we have to be deeply transformative within, when we talk about economic justice, when we talk about alleviating poverty, we really have to turn the tide because if we don't, we're going to have a bigger problem than we have right now. And the problem that we have right now is already way bigger than a pandemic, bigger than any other crisis, where if you go to an emergency room now that we no longer have this disaster management regulation, Go and spend a weekend at an emergency room and see how many black male bodies enter the casualty ward, stabbed, wounded, near death. And we have to question ourselves like, why have we become so numb to, to how we see black men in this country? And, mm -hmm. and the fact that that level of degradation is acceptable, even to the state, is appalling. And I think that's really where we have to see the financial shifts. 350 grant is not enough. Um, that is a, a, a that you know that we have the money. How can a country boast of making a profit during a pandemic? That SARS can go and say we have several trillion rands in in our coffers, but that money is being trickled down to the to the most vulnerable, and the most vulnerable are women young women and young men in this country. There's a young woman going to jail for the NAFSA's money, while we have a politician that can pay 250,000 rand fine and be out of jail. We live in a sick world. South Africa is a very ill society. You know, earlier you spoke about moving hearts and minds. Hopefully, this conversation is a good start. We'll have to thank you for your time. Thank you so much for coming through and speaking to us. Really do appreciate it. Look, we're never going to ventilate everything about toxic masculinity, but the good thing is that the Manhood Simplified podcast hopefully starts the conversation yeah. for you to finally end it.